0: Limited. Hey Phil, it's it's Ollie here. Ollie! The Ollie G! That's the one. Yeah. Ollie Grant, how are you? Yeah, I'm I am i am very well. A bit hot, but uh but all all good, thanks. How are the, 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 the walks going? Yeah, they're they're going well actually. Um I've had some yeah, really great uh great chats with some really in, in, inspiring authors, and I think I'm I'm finally getting somewhere with them, you know. I'm they're, they're, I'm getting a lot of insight from them, they're giving some good advice. Mm, mm, careful. Um, careful I, i'm supposed to be uh, uh guiding you on your path so well, to speak. So yeah that, that, that's kind of why i'm too I'm, many I'm, cooks spoil soup yeah that, that's why i'm calling today phil because a lot of these writers i'm with have got their agents and they're giving them some some their work out there to publishers and stuff and I'm just, yeah, w- w- what's happening with mine? Have you, have you had any contact with publishers recently? I, I'm on the way to meet the Faber twins now, but I've had a great idea, Ollie. So I, I met a lovely lady. Well, she was, a girl, she was young, she was six or seven, and she was reading Where's Wally? And I thought to myself, what can we do with Ollie's book? But where's Wally? Drop the W. Where's Ollie? Who? Overcomes becomes Where's Ali. Well, where's Ollie? Where's you're Ali? My, name, my name's Ollie. That wouldn't work. Yeah, well, if you, you didn't read it, it, if you just heard it... So wait, so just, just, just on the same page here, you, you're saying you want to turn my 300-page novel that I spent three years into a, a spin-off of Where's Wally? Or Where's Ollie? Where is he physically? Where is he emotionally? Where is he... Financially? Yeah, well, I've been asking myself the same sort of questions so, for Look, this isn't this isn't going to work, you know. <coughs> this is this is just preposterous. I need something more concrete. I need something. I need something I can actually go on here. That's going to keep me going, you know. Right. Well, uh, I'll see what I can do. I'll, I'll set up some some meetings. In the meantime, can you? I, I have to go. I have to. Go. I'm watching Love Island with Margaret Atwood. But all the best. <laughs> And welcome to another episode of Walking With, the podcast where I, Ollie Grant, struggling author and critically acclaimed nobody, gets to interview writers who I admire and want to hang out with. Today I am delighted to be talking to a broadcasting legend, Frank Gardner. After reading Arabic and Islamic studies at Exeter, Frank spent a year in Cairo, which triggered a long and lasting love affair with the Middle East. He spent the next nine years as an investment banker, working for Flemings out in Bahrain. But in his mid-thirties, he changed course and took up work experience with the BBC. His talent was swiftly noted and he became the BBC's first ever security correspondent. With from all over the world, particularly the Middle East, Frank became a regular fixture on our radios and television screens. In 2004, his life changed forever when he and Simon Cumbers, his cameraman, were ambushed by al-Qaeda in the back streets of Riyadh. Simon was killed outright, while Frank received six bullets and was left for dead. Against all the odds, Frank survived his execution, and despite having minimal use of his legs, he continues to report live from the scene on Global Affairs. He's written two memoirs, Blood and Sand and Far Horizons, and the second instalment of his highly praised Luke Carlton thriller series, Ultimatum, came out last month. Frank, thank you very much for talking to me today. Oh, sorry, I'm just <laughs> replying to
1: a text here. Um, Gripped uh,
0: by the interview already. Uh,
1: no, 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 sorry. I've just, um, something had to be rescheduled there. Um, well, great. yeah, lovely to, to lovely to meet you all. <laughs> Thank you very much.
0: Um, I'm going to start this interview with a photograph. Mm. So my investigative journalism skills on your Instagram brought right. this up because I think it's a really cool photograph, yeah. the one that featured in your book. It's where I used to live. Can you just tell the listeners a bit about where we are and what sort of point in your life this was taken?
1: This was a, uh, this is photograph of just a lazy weekend afternoon run the pool in the villa I used to live in in Bahrain in the Gulf Um, I was sent there to run the office for Fleming's a Scottish investment bank I kind of drifted into banking by mistake and they had this rented villa um, traditional old Bahraini Arab villa with thick whitewashed walls with the paint peeling off tiny little pool but hey it was a pool so who cares um, hammocks, slowly turning fans, cushions. It was just a kind of oriental paradise, this place. It
0: seems amazing. And it seemed like also that this was a time when you had all the boys' toys available. You had the Bort Scar, you had I the had a, speedboat, you had everything.
1: I had a yeah, soft top convertible five litre. I won't mention which brand. <laughs> um, but um, but yeah, and, and one of the best things was in my first weeks there, my sole task was to go and choose a really good speedboat and a decent engine for it. So um so yeah that was pretty good. I mean it's all, it's great having this stuff, you know, when you were, what 29 as I was then. But the underlying industry of basically flogging investment management to people, it's it's it wasn't terribly it wasn't exciting. Deep. You know, I mean it's, it's it's rewarding, it's it's stable, it's you know, you meet really nice people, you get to wear nice suits, go on nice planes to nice in, well, sometimes nice places. But fundamentally, you're, you're, you never actually touch the asset that you're dealing with. Mm. It's all invisible. You know, there's, there's no product at the end of it. You're sitting down and having meetings with people. Um, and to me, journalism is so much
0: more real. Mm. I was reading your book and reflecting on those times. You get this sense that you always wanted something a bit more than, than The Office Life. And although you had all these wonderful trappings that came with it, it mm. seemed like you wanted a bit more of adventure, given what you had. Um, Grant, this photo, when you look at it, I always think this could have been a still from something like Goldfinger, for example. <laughs> it does have that feel to it. But you were uh. once approached by MI6 and turned it down. Has there always been maybe a little bit of bond in, in, in Frank Gardner somewhere?
1: No, I don't think so. I'm, I mean, I've met plenty of people in that industry. Um, both serving and retired Um, and it's nothing like as glamorous as you think they like most of us spend a huge amount of their time in front of desktop computers Uh, they spend a large amount of time in meetings pushing out emails or whatever their secret equivalent is Um, you know like life in the military a huge amount of it is boredom and then you have short periods of intense heightened activity and heightened adrenaline So, um, no, I'm not tempted by that. I was never tempted by it. Well, I was, but when I went to the interview and that killed it for me, being told that you'll never be able to take
0: credit for any kind of big successes (laughs) you have. That's not for me. A friend of mine also got, uh, and he went through the interview process, mm-hmm. and then after about did about 12 rounds, and he got to number five, and then they said to him, um, oh, so um, how have your friends and family reacted to the news? And they go, oh, they're all delighted. They're all thinking, no, you're right. <laughs> you can't be a spy if you tell everyone exactly that you're going to be a spy. Yeah. Um, so mm-hmm. we'll come on to the, the Luke Carlton books in a bit, mm-hmm. but go want to go back to the beginning and your first memoir, Blood and Sand. Mm-hmm. Which I enjoyed immensely. What I loved about it was the sense of you as a young man and that sort of euphoria of ignorance and that joy of Mm. discovering new lands and and new cultures. Where did that curiosity come from at a a young age?
1: Probably came, I suppose, probably came from my parents. I mean, being uh, my dad was posted to Holland to to, his diplomatic service, so to um, to live in the Hague. And then at the time, we didn't have there was no Eurostar, there was no Channel Tunnel. England was Britain was an island and so to live on the continent to be able to drive across a border that was a big deal when you're six years old you know to present your passport at the german border you know to see people wearing wearing guns on their hips you know that's that was a new thing for me as a six-year-old that was pretty exciting so and then holidays being able to drive down to switzerland to the alps that was really exciting or get on an overnight couchette train that went down to the I don't know the Pyrenees or something. That was really exciting. So I think that sense of adventure was born really early. I um, think
0: when I was reading it, it remi- there were some passages in it which reminded me of something like a Paddy Lee fir- firm or something mm. like that. That sense of adventure and discovering these. Were there any travel writers that you read who kind of inspired you to go, particularly that part of the world?
1: Um, well, I, I'm just trying to think. I mean, by the time I did my my gap year, my gap year, um, I read Wilfred Thestier's Marsh Arabs and um, uh, Arabian Sands, I don't think I'd read Desert Martian Mountain by then, but but it's certainly the first two So that was you know that was drawing me to the Middle East and the nearest I got to that in my gap year at 18 was Morocco because I did the interrail experience and Morocco was part of the interrail thing so for I think 130 quid you got a month's free travel rail travel all over Europe including Hungary, Romania and Morocco so I just thought alright let's push this let's see how far I can get on this so I pushed it right to the Algerian border but the Algerians wouldn't let me in without a visa and I stayed in this awful place called Oujda, which was basically a smuggling town on the border where people would say like why are you here people only come here to smuggle and you don't look like a smuggler <laughs> You know. Um, so um, yeah but I mean otherwise I had fantastic times in Morocco I mean it was just thrilling to that was my first Arab country, and just that first taste of mint tea in a cafe in Tangier overlooking the port, and just the sheer exoticness and differentness of it after Western Europe. Mm. But I used to go a lot to Eastern Europe as well because I found it much more interesting to go to, to cross into East Berlin or to go to Bulgaria and places like that. When it was part of the Warsaw Pact, you know, when there was during the Cold War, it was always fascinating to go to a Place that had a completely different system, you know. When you cross from glitzy, garish, neon-lit West Berlin into the kind of penumbra, the kind of semi gloom darkness mm-hmm. of East Berlin, where everything was grey and grim, it was fascinating. The like
0: disparity in such short geographical
1: space. Yeah, spaces. but also to get there by land, you had to cross through East Germany. So you, you know, I hitched a lift with a bunch of hippies once from Hanover to Berlin, and in their in their hippie bus from Um, as I said from Hanover and you've got to cross the border into east into the DDR the German Democratic Republic and then you cross again into West Berlin and it's this little enclave which was a kind of hangover from World War II from 1945 because it was jointly the control was shared between Russia what was then the USSR the UK France and the US and there would be these signs up saying in English and German what, you know beware you're now leaving the American sector and passing into the Russian sector you know and once you get there, there are Russian soldiers you know in fur hats in winter stamping with the great big Cossack boots and belts and machine guns and it was John Lecarry wow. it was a spy who came in from the cold stuff It's the real deal yeah. Um, it's a pale imitation nowadays. Yeah, there's a museum there, well, Checkpoint
0: Charlie <coughs> the Museum. When you see so when you went to your gap year and you got to Algeria, and then your year abroad in Cairo, there where you seem to really immerse yourself in the culture, you've you got to live with the family there. One of the things that I found really interesting when when you finished that chapter, you said that you had a shared love of Egyptian culture, but you both had a shared love of irony and, and that sense of humour as well. You've obviously done so much and spoken to so many people from a variety of cultures how important is humor in trying to in breaking down barriers and understanding a culture better I think that's a kind of loaded
1: question because obviously it's massively important yeah. um, and Egyptians have a superb sense of humor I mean they've got a wonderful sense of irony as you as you rightly say so a very popular way of addressing people in Egypt where or, the way ordinary people address ordinary people is they call each other "yareis," race or president or Yahya yeah, stares a professor to you know to a road sweeper you know and it's just it's it's a wonderful <laughs> kind of tongue in cheek thing and and they're so funny Egyptians they, they're in a really good way they and just
0: did they appreciates sort all of the British sarcasm that
1: yeah came I think you they book. did I think that's probably why I clicked with them yeah. I mean I spent a lot of time as a student I spent a lot of time with Egyptian students there and I mean they were just continually continually making up jokes so I. I went to stay with some students once, one an afternoon, and every day at a certain time of day, a particularly tall woman would pass, walk down the street, and they would hide behind the balcony and shout out, Dur, four stories, and then hide behind the balcony. <laughs> I mean, you know, like they're six or something, you know. Um, and, uh, oh God, they even, they had these, these, they once said to me, uh, Mr. Frank, what is your favorite sport? I said I don't know I don't, table tennis or something you know I will tell you what mine is it is <laughs> I said, well, what does that mean it means liberated sports beneath the belly button
0: you know you've got to work out <laughs> what that one means <laughs> <laughs> but you when you so then you spent your, your year there and um, and you really got to immerse yourself in that and I think what's great is you saw sort of throughout your life you seem very epic moments in history and in, in, in places but you in Cairo got to experience the real domestic side of things and yeah. the the literature and the music and the cuisine and the rituals and the family life and i think well i think i maybe making assumptions here was that maybe triggered this your fascination with, with with these countries and that part of the world what i want to know is that for now for people in our generation how can we come to love and understand the countries in the way that you have when we perhaps can't visit them in the same way that you did, mm. because of obviously times have changed in certain terms, how how can we yeah. understand in that way I, if we uh, don't, if we can't be afforded that experience that you have? You know? Well, I'd
1: I'd never say never. Mm. Um, I mean, you're right that I think nine eleven changed a lot of things, and um, definitely I sensed a huge change in the Middle East post nine eleven. So, for example. Pre 9/11, I went to live with the Bedouin in Jordan, and I was accepted completely—just um, me on my own, living with this the Beni tribe in these black goat's hair tents in the heat of summer. It was fantastic. I was, you know, I was treated as an equal. They made no allowances for me. I fasted with them. I feasted with them. I slept on the sand. I ate the same food. It was it was brilliant. I went back in 2002, to so a year after 9/11 attacks. And visited the same tribe and it was like an invisible wall had come up a barrier Now admittedly that was only Months after President Bush George W. Bush at the time had said you're either with us or you're against us He saw the Middle East in black and white terms. You're either on our side or you're one of the bad guys And that was a crass way of looking at the Middle East or anywhere for that matter because you know, I said at the time long before that book came out the Middle East is a hundred shades of grey yeah. you know it's There are so many different variations, and it's dynamic. People one day who will be quite happy chatting with Westerners may the next day think, hmm, these people represent something quite bad, and then they'll be friends again. It moves, it changes. So it's never too late to do that. Um, There are plenty of countries in the Middle East um, which are at peace. Oman is an obvious example. You can go and have a wonderful time in Oman. Um, And, you know, there's no violence there. Um, There are other places, I mean, Alex Garland, who wrote The Beach, followed it up with a sequel that very few people have heard of, but called The Tesseract. And to my mind, it's a brilliant book. It's set in Manila. And I've never met Alex Garland, but I'm assuming from reading that book, he must have spent some time living with a low-income Filipino family. In a pretty rough part of Manila, because he gets absolutely under the skin of Filipino life, metropolitan Manila life. It's brilliant. The, the book disappeared without trace. It just didn't have the same pulling power as the beach. But in a way, it's a better. It's a better book. It's just brilliant. Um, and that shows what you can do if you kind of go and immerse yourself. In a culture, it's never too late to do it. I used to argue with with Wilfred Thester about this, because as far as he was concerned, the Middle East was ruined by oil. The Arabs, he used to say, were once magnificent people, totally spoiled by the internal combustion engine. What a load of nonsense. You know, it's, uh, yeah, okay. You can't live quite the ascetic life that he did, going across dunes. You know, he he said it would be pointless to walk across them now when you could drive across in a four-wheel drive. But I didn't have that choice in my time. But that doesn't mean to say you can't do lots of adventure there. So uh, you know, so has n- that rom-
0: romantic era has perhaps passed for the new? I'd, has
1: well, been. maybe yes and no. I mean, okay, you know, with satellite GPS and all the rest of it, it's it's taken some of the glamour out of it. But you know, in every era there are adventures to be had. They're just different. So I I never want to be one of those crusty old buggers that says you know oh, you couldn't have done what I did. There are things that people can do nowadays. You know, I mean, you can paraglide over Everest. I mean, how cool is that? Nobody did that in my day.
0: As you know, this podcast is called Walking With, and unfortunately we won't be doing that today. Mm. I don't want to dwell too much on your shooting because it's Just to be scary. clear, but we can't do that because I'm in a wheelchair. We could uh, call it Wheeling With. <laughs> we could call it that. But I don't want to dwell too much on that because it's been very well documented mm. elsewhere. What I do want to ask you, which I thought was really interesting, is when you wrote in your book, Blood and Sands, is that you started writing this book almost as soon as you could sit up in bed. Mm. How much was the process of writing and reflecting part of your recovery process? Huge definitely a huge part of it it's very very
1: therapeutic so when I got I got hit by six bullets and spent seven months in hospital 14 surgical operations I had a lot of time to think um, and to kind of sort my mind out with things and one of the as soon as the bullet wound in my shoulder had healed that I could move my arm I asked for the laptop Um, my wife brought the laptop to the hospital and I thought right I'm gonna bang everything down in the laptop that I remember from the attack which is everything um, that first chapter when yeah, it. yeah called hit for six I think and I didn't know what I was going to do with it maybe nothing but I thought I'll get it all down, um, and that then became the kind of the kernel the basis of the, the book Blood and Sand that I th- later wrote but that first chapter became that that core of it um, and I would advise anybody who's had a really traumatic experience um, whether it's a terrible life-threatening illness or injury or bereavement, anything like that, it's, it's, a, it's a great way of getting it out of yourself. Put it down in, um, in the laptop. By all means, you know, password protected. Keep, it may never see the light of day, but you never know get it down there. Were you
0: writing this book for anybody at that point, it Was purely for yourself at that point in time? Yeah,
1: well I mean it was for the readers, yeah. you know, but I mean I'd always thought that I would write a book when I was 60 or something about my time
0: times in the Middle East. I didn't expect to write it in my early 40s. You're blessed with a very distinct voice that we hear. Mm. If it comes on our TV or radio, we know it's Frank Gardner. How did you go about finding your voice on the page, both in the memoirs and then in the novels as well? Because they very they're quite different voices, I think, what you wrote in your the personal yeah, ones than the... I, I mean, when I first
1: started at the BBC, I was a bit daunted by the whole thing. Like, oh, my God, this is the BBC. i better... So when I did a piece to camera, I put on this rather kind of formal...
0: Yeah, do they train you to speak no, in, in I've never that had way any, with that dictionary, no, the, the, the pauses? absolutely <laughs> not.
1: No, I've never had any journalistic training at BBC whatsoever. Zilch, none.
0: It's just part of the furniture, people just yeah, do it that way. but
1: when I started, I mistakenly thought, right, well, I'd better be terribly kind of serious and mm. formal, and I did these awful wooden pieces to camera. Today, the United Nations has announced that, you know... And I was I was made to 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 kind of understudy somebody who used to put on this deep voice and I realised pretty quickly what a load of nonsense. Just be yourself, mm. talk normally. You know, by all means, if you've got to make an announcement, you can perhaps make it a bit, p- put a bit more emphasis in it. But it's it's really just about being a normal person. Um, so and when you
0: are reporting, I think you're always told to have this economy of words mm. to try and say it in, in the least amount possible from going that to then going to write these books especially the fiction was that quite a relief to not have to be that constrained or does that kind of follow you through it's
1: it's a it's a big um, it's a big difference so the leap from the leap from broadcast journalism to writing a non-fiction book is quite big and which is why it puts off most I mean really comparatively few of my colleagues do it Um, Because, you know, writing a book, it takes an awful lot out of you. You Apart from anything, you've got to give a lot of time to do it. Um, And you've got to have, even in non-fiction, a beginning, a middle, and an end, you've got to plan it out. It's got to be, it's got to have a sequence to it. But the jump from non-fiction to fiction is huge. It's a whole different world, especially for somebody in news journalism, because it's completely counterintuitive. You're going against everything that is in your DNA, Mm -hmm. which is, you know, don't make anything up, be fair, be impartial, be objective, be truthful, be accurate. Fictions, none of those things, it's quite the opposite. So it's quite liberating in a way. Yeah. And so, did it
0: come quite easily to you despite?
1: No, it didn't. Um, I mean, I always enjoyed it at school when you were kind of told to write an essay on something and creative writing was always fun. But no, but I was a slow starter with it. I needed, I'd, I've had far more coaching from my literary agent than I've ever had it from BBC. Well, I've had no coaching from BBC. Unfortunately, I haven't sort of needed it, but, but I definitely needed it in fiction writing. I mean, I didn't go on a course or anything like that, but my excellent agent, Julian Alexander, um, was able to say, okay, you know, I think we need, we need to know a bit more about his girlfriend or you know, his, his manager, why is this person so evil or so difficult or whatever? Let's have more of that. So he'd kind of help steer me in the right direction. I wrote all the words, but I'd be given a bit of
0: encouragement which direction to go. And so The the Crisis and Ultimatum, they follow the character of Luke Carlton, an SAS officer. SBS. SBS. Special Boat Service. That's the one. Part of the Navy. And he sort of thwarts uh, attempts upon our our national security in both Colombia and then uh, the Middle East Iran in the the second one as well. What compelled you to write this book? Did it come with the character of Luke first or were these scenarios that you wanted to write about?
1: No, I think the country came first. So I... I wrote, I started writing Crisis on a flight to LA, 11 hour flight, no movies I wanted to see particularly, so I thought, right, how do I fill 11 hours? I know, I'll open up the laptop and start writing this novel. Let's just do this. And I started with the sort of premise of this, this corpse, this dead body that a police patrol discovers in the jungle on the edge of a very drug infested town in Southwest Colombia that I'd been to called Tomaco. Um, and from there, I just thought, right, let's just build this up. The dead body is that of an MI6 officer. And so it obviously causes alarm bells back in London. He turns out to be the station chief of Bogota. What was he doing there? Why was he there? Why hadn't he told anybody what he was doing? So you've got to have a sense of mystery. And yes, you need a kind of hero or heroine in it. But it was very important to me to have strong female characters in it. This is not a kind of bish, bosh, boy zone, you know, series. I, you know, yes, it's true the hero is male, is Luke because I can a lot of his words, a lot of things that are going through is, he's not me, but a lot of his thoughts would be
0: how I would think and I, I think you guys, having I mean, read your work and then the books as well I think you share a, certainly a sense of humour as well that's quite mm. a sort of British gallows humour in there that, that goes yeah. from the two, which is really nice but like you said the female characters are incredibly strong in this but I think what's great about it is they're not, they are not this, they're quite self-aware because you mm. sort of say it's not this Bish boy shagging around the world and mm. blowing up things. There's a really strong and very real domestic element to mm. them. And that strain with uh, Luke and Elise is very real and that conflict... Elise is of, his girlfriend, yeah. yeah. The conflict between the duty to one's work and one's relationship I thought was really well explored. Did that come, obviously you've been all over the world, does that have some personal experience? Yeah, that? it
1: does. I mean it's, it's, it's something that as foreign correspondents we experience in BBC or any foreign media uh, when you're in somewhere like Cairo or Dubai because it's something i experienced a lot you know especially when i was middle east correspondent in cairo there wasn't much news happening when i was there in 2000 2001 so i was always being assigned off to gaza to kuwait to morocco to jerusalem wherever and that's really tough on your partner in my case my wife with a young family she said great you're back fantastic how long are you back for and i'd say well hopefully yeah i've got no, nothing planned for the next three weeks then the phone would ring and you don't know if it's the Today programme saying, could you do John Humphreys in the morning? Or the assignments manager saying, go to Damascus f- for an indefinite period of time. Mm. Could be two days, could be two weeks. And that's, that's very unsettling, um, especially if you've got a young family, which we did. So. Uh, um,
0: and now when you're back, Amanda, does she enjoy having you around the house as a writer or are you quite insufferable when you're actually writing? I, I go
1: off to a cafe to write. Do you?
0: Yeah, I just, I, I can't write at home. It doesn't back. work.
1: Doesn't work because it's it's just you're distracted by you know our girls are you know they're pretty much adults now I mean so you know they're still at home which is great but you know I want to be when I'm at home I want to be listening to the banter yeah and I can't I need to have my mind clear to to be able to write this stuff
0: and you are an incredibly busy man how do you find the time for it like you said earlier to it's very
1: difficult stuff. it's very difficult on top of a full time job it's been writing ultimatum was particularly difficult because it's been a very busy last year or so so it's taken me over two years to write this i mean the the deadlines that the publisher set initially which the salespeople wanted they wanted a book a year yeah. and stupidly i thought i could do that of course i can't you know there's no way i could meet that deadline so it's taken me longer to write than i'd expected but no i mean you write at weekends in the evenings do you write late,
0: I, late into the night You're night out.
1: sometimes yeah i'm certainly not a morning person yeah. um Holidays, yeah. you know. I wrote quite a lot over Christmas, um, and I delivered this so late, so close to the wire, that actually we didn't get the reviews in in time to put on the cover. So, um, so it was But real. the
0: reviews are out now, and they're great. Sunny Times yes. for the month. Yeah, and on their reading list this uh, this weekend, it was in there. Yes, the hundred best things to read this summer. Was I was there. happy about that. Definitely, do think because they are brilliant. So, what can we expect next from A. Frank Gardner and B. Luke Carlton? Because they can't um, they can't
1: end that. Oh, no, it's not. I've, I've signed a trilogy, so I've signed a, you know, it's, it's going to be at least a trilogy. I, I mean, you know, unless the third one's a massive flop or I get run over by the proverbial bus, there will be more after that. Um, I think I'm going to send him send him north to somewhere cold. Fantastic. Um, so we've had the steamy jungle in Colombia. We've had the hot, dry gulf. Now he needs to go somewhere icy. The
0: man for all seasons. Frank Garner, thank you very much for talking right. to me. Thank you. It's coming home, it's coming, football's coming home, dire for England! <laughs> hey guys, it's the Ollie G here, and a very giddy Ollie G here. <sighs> what a night. I know about you guys, but I did not sleep a winky, not a wink. That was just a bit too much, wasn't it? It's not too much, it's, it's, it's fantastic, it's brilliant, it's just, it's just too exciting, it's too exciting. Oh, the boys, they're just doing us so proud. Um, Harry Maguire, what a man, where did he come from? He just gets his head to everything, and oh, I could go on, Gareth Southgate, I, I love him. I feel he's a bit like a um it's like he's taken over from a naughty class and he's like a substitute teacher and everyone sort of thought he'd just be here for a couple of weeks and so they thought they'd give him a bit hard time make his life hell and then they've realized that they've got exams coming up and actually this bloke could, could, is just trying to help them out and now everyone just feels a little bit guilty for having been so naughty earlier on and now they're just they just love him and they just want to do the homework and they just they just want to do well for gareth it's just great isn't it and anyway, that's my gareth southgate analogy for you there anyway i hope you're all well and you are being struck down by a severe dose of world cup fever um breaking news guys there is no antidote so you're gonna to have to get used to it all righty um so let's let's return to uh Return to Normal Play, that was me talking to the author and broadcaster, Frank Gardner, and I put on my more BBC voice whilst doing that. As Frank said in that interview, BBC, they talk in a very specific way, Um, but it was fascinating to get to talk to the man, and he very kindly invited me to the BBC studios W1A, which are, if in case anyone's wondering, exactly like it is in the sitcom W1A as I was leaving, people were approaching on their, their Brompton bikes for work. Um, so that made me chuckle. Um, but it was great to sit and, and talk with Frank and he was very generous with his time because he is an exceptionally busy man. Um, and I think what struck me most and what I hope is you can take away from that interview is that given the immense hardship he has endured over his life, his, his humour firstly, um, but his, his aptitude for life, um, and his humility as well, is just astounding, um, and it was incredible to spend some time with him. So The books we talked about was his first memoir, Blood and Sand, which he wrote um, very short after his shooting when he was in recovery, and then his second one, Far Horizons, which charts his travels around the globe post that moment, and then obviously more recently, the number one best-selling thriller, Crisis, which has been follow up with... Ultimatum which came out in May, both of which are are utterly brilliant. I'm not much of a thriller reader to be honest. Um I leave that gig to my stepdad. But um but Frank's ones, they really did have me by the uh by the shortened curly's. So um definitely do go pick up a copy. They are they they're well worth a read. Um so yeah, big thanks to to Mel Balker for sorting that one out. Um Thank you very much indeed. But anyway, all is well with me. Hope all's good with you guys. Um, Until next time, you know what to do? Keep walking, keep reading, but most importantly, keep listening. Come on, England!